Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 105, and it's a description of the history of God's people, specifically their interactions with who God is and what God's done and what God's promised to do for them. Uh, together with the next Psalm, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, they form a pair. Uh, this one, Psalm 105, has as its focus how God treated his people. Uh, Psalm 106 is about how God's people treated him. Psalm 105 is all about God's grace to Israel. Psalm 106, all about Israel's disgrace to God. Richard Sibick got me a t-shirt for my birthday last month. Um, It said, be careful or you'll end up as an illustration in my sermon. (laughs) And I told Krista I was going to use her as an illustration. She said, what's new? Um, I don't know if you're fond of history. If uh, Back when Krista was in school, she told me she hated history. She just saw it as a bunch of facts and a bunch of dates. She didn't see the importance of it. Uh, it wasn't until we moved down here um, when I was in the Army and like, we, didn't, we were poor and didn't have a lot to do on the weekends. We'd go to like, Civil War, Revolutionary War, battlefields, and, and different historic sites and that's when Krista really started to love history because it was made real to her. Everything she had read about and been quizzed on and took tests on, I mean, she actually saw where it happened. And um, now I take her to places like, I think it was on our little Christmas day of fun. She wanted to go to Governor Acock's birthplace and I could have been in and out of there in 10 minutes and she was there for an hour reading everything. And, you know, she loves history. Um, and, and this historical psalm here, Psalm 105, it's got value for us too. Um, like other historical psalms, um, this is a record of who God is, what God has done, what God's promised. But it's designed by God for you and I to remind us of who God is for us. And uh, it is to be used to jog our memory about what God has done for us. Sometimes we're like, you know, we feel like so left alone or deserted by God. And it's when we read who he was and what he has done for his people. And then all of a sudden we start remembering works that he's done in our own lives. And God wants it to fuel our faith in what he's promised to do for us. It's a longer psalm, so we better get into it. Let's read it together now. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works that he has done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham his servant. Ye children of Jacob his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. 
which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac. And he confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance. When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He brake the whole staff of bread. And he sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. And the king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and he let him go free. And he made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly, and God made them stronger than their enemies. And he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. And God sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spake, and there came diverse sorts of flies and lice in all their coast. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. And he smote their vines also and their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake, and the locusts came, and caterpillars, and that without number, and did eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of the ground. He smote also the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. And God brought them forth also with silver and gold. There was not a feeble person among the tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. And he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. And people asked, and he brought quails, and he satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and the water gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen with gladness, and he gave them the lands of the heathen. And they inherited the labor of the people, that they might observe his statutes, and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. If we go back to the first six verses. It's talking about the worship of God. And we're, we're told there how to worship God. How God demands to be worshipped. How he desires to be worshipped by his people. First of all in verse 1 through continual thanksgiving. In these first six verses there's, there's a bunch of commands. For how we're to worship the Lord. Give thanks and call upon him and sing and glory in him, and seek him, and remember him. But every one of these commands, they're obviously, they're verbs, but they are in the imperfect tense in, in the Hebrew. That's important. We, we don't have that. It doesn't translate over into English. Uh, when God commands us to worship him how he demands and desires here in verse 1, uh, it says, oh, give thanks. It, it could be translated, continue to give thanks. Never stop giving thanks to the Lord. That's not something that should be relegated to the month of November, is it? I mean, we, that's Thanksgiving. That's definitely when we focus. But we are to continually give thanks to God. Isn't he worthy of it? Yeah, he is. And we're to worship him also through continual praise. Verses 2 and 3, once again, in the Hebrew imperfect tense, God tells us to worship him continually by singing unto him. 
We're to sing psalms unto him. We are to continuously talk of all his wondrous work. And we know how to sing. And, and we're given what should be the content, what should be the lyrics of our songs. We just did it tonight. We said, great are you, Lord. The content should be all of his wondrous works. But it says here to sing psalms. How are we to obey this command? How are we to worship God as he demands here? And we got the lyrics, this whole book of psalms. It's, it's God's divine hymnal. He wrote this hymnal. Um, sometimes in the superscript, we'll get a tempo or a tone or the musical instrument that it's supposed to be played on. But we don't have any musical notation here. If, if Miss Judy took the, the book of psalms up to the piano, she might not know what exact keys to play because there's no notes given here. So how are we to obey this command to continuously sing psalms? And some Christians have put um, music to these Bible verses. But in the Hebrew, in the original language, sing psalms literally means to play music as praise and to continuously do that. And we've got that covered here. Praise the Lord for all the people who bless us every Sunday, every Wednesday by leading us in worship. And we're to do this continually, not just, not just on Sundays, or Wednesdays, it says continually, never stop singing praise, never stop making music. Do you do that? Do, do you sing praise by yourself at home or in the car? We should. That's what God's commanding us to do here. I do. So if you happen to be driving down the road and you see Jason, and I'm not aware of you, um, and you see me belting it out, uh, I'm not yelling at somebody. I'm probably, probably uh, just singing praise, and it's nice in there because nobody... Nobody um, is offended by my musical ability or lack thereof. We're to do it constantly, continually. Verse 3 says, we're to glory in his holy name. When scripture speaks of God's name, it's referring to all of his attributes, all the different ways he's revealed himself in scripture to us. Is that what you continually glory in as you sing praise to God? And then verse 3 ends this way. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. We're to continuously rejoice when we seek the Lord. Do you have joy? Do you have joy in your heart tonight? If you don't, could it be that you're seeking something other than the Lord? Or you're glorying in something other than him? Listen, when we obey God's command to worship him by, by continually seeking him, when you continually seek God, you will recognize, you will be aware of everything he is for us. And when that is the continual meditation of your heart and mind, joy will be your continuous emotional state. You, you can't help it. It's when we're not continually seeking God. It's when we're not continually glorying in who he is for us in Jesus Christ. It's during those times uh, or those seasons in our life when we break away and we seek something else or, or we glory in something or someone other than him. Those are the times in our lives when we're sure to see our joy dip or, or fade. And this continually seeking the Lord command to worship in verses 4 to 6 through continual faith. And I think that is the highest form of praise or worship that God desires. Continuous, obedient faith. Because it's a song of thanks that, um, that we sing through our beliefs and our behaviors. It's a song of praise that never ends. The service doesn't ever get over and then it's quiet. Continuous, obedient faith is a continuous worship of God. Verse 4 commands us to seek the Lord, seek his strength, seek his face forevermore. 
In the Hebrew, three times we're told to do this. And we know in Scripture, anytime you have something in three, it's like holy, holy, holy. Pay attention. This is important. We are to seek him. Meaning an ever, when we say seek his face, it means that we are to seek an ever deepening, intimate, personal relationship with God. You and I wanting that. You and I desiring that above all else. So yeah, that's a pathway to continual faith. That's a performance of the Bible's definition of what faith really is. Continuously seeking God and wanting that. And verses 5 to 6 command us to do uh, what these historical psalms always um, command us to do. And what they're designed to help us do, we're to remember. Continuously remember God's marvelous works that he has done, his wonders, and the judgments of his mouth. And so when we obey this command, when we worship God this way, uh, by remembering who he is and what he has done and what he's promised to do, well, that's how we can leave places of fear. We can leave places of doubt and places of seeking other inadequate sources of joy and strength. Uh, Remembering God's marvelous works, that is how we rise to continual faith that worships God. So let's do it. Let's go through the rest of this psalm here and remember who he is and what he has done and what he's promised. It's the works of God, verses 7 through 45, the whole rest of this psalm. Uh, And this section begins by uh, recollecting the creation of God's people, not like Genesis creation, but the creation of God's people when he called out Abraham. And he promised Abraham he was going to make of him a nation. God's forever faithfulness to the patriarchs. His historic reliability is highlighted here. And if there's one word or one concept that's stressed in verses 7 to 15, it's covenant. God's covenant that he made with Abraham. That's the focus. It's mentioned first in verse 8. It's further described there as the word which God commanded to a thousand generations. So it's not just for Abraham, but it's for all of his descendants. And we know in the New Testament that includes those who are Abraham's descendants by faith. And you know what is so great and lovely and reliable about this covenant? Is that it's God's. It's God's covenant. He made it. It's not two-sided. It's not dependent on two different individuals mutually keeping up their end of the deal. And I'm so glad it is. Because if it were up to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or on and on and on down to you and I here tonight, if it were up to us, it would not be reliable in any way. But it's not. We're saved by God's grace alone. He's the one that made covenant. It's one-sided. It's from him to us, and it's reliable. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And it's God, that, in his grace, that is the foundation of this reliable covenant. It's what makes it eternally reliable. And then we get evidence of this reliable covenant from God by a list of his wondrous works to those whom he made it. Uh, Abraham and Isaac in verse 9. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel and through whom the people of Israel uh, descended, in verse 10. And, and that God's, and that this, this covenant's primary provision was for a Messiah Savior to one day come, and, and through whom God would make Abraham and his descendants a blessing to all nations. Um, that, that's the covenant's primary provision, and, and that's the one that we enjoy even today because of Jesus Christ. But there's an additional promise in this covenant that God made with Abraham in verse 11. He said, unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. 
Now that promise has been fulfilled. His people experienced it in the Old Testament under David, uh, under Solomon, um, as recorded even here in Psalm 105. But that promise will be fully and finally fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns and, and he and Israel's brought back to that place. And Jesus reigns from Israel, from Jerusalem. In verses 12 to 15, they describe the different works of God that, that, that offer us proof that his saving covenant with his people was reliable and it is reliable and it will always be reliable. What were Abraham and his people like? They were small, it says. They were small people in comparison with other tribes. They had enemies who threatened them. And yet the indisputable historical record of God marvelously working for them, it's found in verses 13 to 15. Let's read them again. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes. This is what God said. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. And that promise is to you as well. It's applicable to us. We're his people. We're under a better covenant even. We're under the new covenant in Christ. And God will suffer no man to do us wrong. Uh, this is Christ's sovereign edict as king of kings and lord of lords regarding us, regarding our enemies. Touch my, not mine anointed. That is who we are in Christ. We're his chosen. We're his anointed. And while we might encounter suffering here in this world, and it may seem uh, like there are enemies that are trying to touch us, we know that our sovereign Lord Jesus, he is reigning over all. There's nothing that has happened, is currently happening, or ever will happen to those who are in Christ that can ever counteract God's plan to work all things for our good and for his glory. This promises for us, too. In verses 16 to 41, uh, we read about his historic redemption. And I'm, because this is such a long psalm, uh, I'm going to summarize uh, what everything is said here in verses 16 uh, through 41. Also, we've got a Wednesday night crew who's, who's familiar with what God is calling us to remember here. But what is this a story of? In verses 16 to 41, it's a story of the Exodus. And while the first 15 verses might have been about the creation of God's people when he called them out, uh, this here is about their recreation. In the Old Testament Exodus narrative, we've got this perfect metaphor or type, Old Testament type, where we can see similarities to when we as Christians are called by the Holy Spirit to place our trust in Jesus as Savior when we were born again. It says here in verse 16, a great famine occurred worldwide. But then it says, but God sent a man before them. God sent a man before his people. That man was Joseph. And before we move on from, from this verse, please note the sovereignty of God and the reliability of who he is and what he's promised as we study what God's done here. God sent a man before them. I want you to think about Joseph's ordeal. I mean, the decades-long ordeal from getting sold by his brothers <laughs> Until he finally became, that's what we're reading about here, until he finally became second in charge to Pharaoh. Think about that whole ordeal. And it may seem like Joseph was sold into slavery. He even says that in the second half of verse 17. But how does God view it? How does God describe what happened here? God sent Joseph there. God sent him there. And with a purpose. 
Uh, initially for the care of his people to provide them relief from this famine, but ultimately for the redemption of his people from Egypt into the promised land. You know that account well, so we'll jump down to verse 25. After Joseph is promoted to second in charge of Pharaoh, after the famine has ended, God's people multiplied greatly there in Egypt. And verse 25 says that God turned their heart. He turned the Egyptians' heart to hate his people and to deal subtly with his servants. This is again emphasizing the sovereignty and the reliability of God to come through on his covenant and to come through on his care for his people. It says it was God who turned the Egyptians' hearts to hate his people. And we've got to deal with this because um, this as well as verses in Exodus that talk about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, um, they've caused some confusion for some people. Doesn't God's word say that God is never the author of sin? Yeah. I like how Charles Spurgeon put it. God cannot be in any sense the author of sin insofar as to be morally responsible for its existence. But it often happens through the evil which is inherent in the human nature that the acts of the Lord arouse the ill feelings of ungodly men. That's what happened here. The acts of the Lord. God multiplied them greatly just as he covenanted to do. Just as he promised to do. And in that way God did turn the heart of the Egyptians to hate his people. Does that make sense? And you're well aware of what happened from this point on as, as verses 26 through 28 describe. A little baby was born, right, named Moses, and he was protected in a pretty miraculous and marvelous way. And God raised up that child to lead his people out of bondage and out of slavery and into the promised land. The marvelous and wondrous works of God for his people in their redemption. They're like an avalanche here in this passage. When it talks about uh, the exodus, uh, those miraculous ten plagues are described, including the one that culminated all of them in verse 36. The one that finally caused the Egyptians to, to send the Israelites out of slavery when the firstborn was killed. And then as verse 37 says, they sent them out. Egyptians sent them out with silver and gold. They were so glad to relinquish them as God redeemed them that they sent them out with all the riches of Egypt. There's one little phrase there in verse 37, though, that I, that I think may be as or even more miraculous in God's redemption of his people than anything else. There was not a feeble person among the tribes. Isn't that something? I mean, when you think about them leaving Egypt, there was not one feeble person among the tribes. That's, some, that's a miraculous work of God. Because you know what scripture says about how they were treated in Egypt. Especially when Moses said, let my people go at the beginning. He said, okay, we're done giving you straw. You go find it now. You know how they were beaten and how they were, they were whipped. Not even one God, not even one infant, not even one sickly, not even one elderly person who was too frail for this journey out. Church, do we have a God who does miraculous works for his people? Yeah. And it's no different today uh, and, and with us. Listen, when God takes a person, when God takes a person who is spiritually dead, who is in complete bondage to sin, uh, who is on their way to hell, when God calls them to life by his Holy Spirit through the gospel message, that beats any of this as far as miracles go. It's one we see all the time. It's one we've all experienced. That God is powerful enough through the sacrifice of Christ, to, as Ephesians 2 says, to quicken us, to alive us, is what it means, to resurrect us 
out of the slavery to sin that we were in, out of the hopeless bondage to new life in Christ, that is a miraculous work of God in our redemption that this should be pointing to as we go through it. Verses 39 through 42, a short summary of God's care for his people as they wandered in the wilderness. They're traveling from Egypt to the promised land. They got an extended trip because they refused to go into Canaan right off the bat. But what did God do for them while they wandered in that wilderness? They needed shade in the desert. What did he do? He provides a cloud to lead them and guide them and protect them. They needed warmth and guidance in those cool, dark desert nights. What does God do? He provides a pillar of fire to warm them and to guide them. They get hungry. God provides quail and manna for them. They got thirsty. It says God provides water out of a rock. It's the works of our God. And all of these provisions that are listed here in those verses, once again, they're types and they're metaphors for the greatest provision of God in his covenant to us and his working for us in our redemption. They all point to Jesus Christ. Like that manna, he's the bread of life. Like the water from the rock, he's the living water. Like the cloud, like the fire. They all point to that. Let's close tonight by looking at verses 42 to 45 now. And we see the works of God in his historic reward to us. These verses are about what God's covenant brings us. As if what he has not done to this point is enough. Um, God, God remembered. It says God remembered his holy promise to Abraham and his descendants. And so he brought forth his people with joy, it says there. And with gladness. Now some people have asked, um, who is joyful and glad here. Is it talking about God? Did God bring forth his people with joy? Is God the one that's joy and joyful and glad? Or was it his people? Um, I say yes. It is God's great joy to redeem us for his glory. It's not something that you have to, you know, try to get him to do. This is God, what God wants to do. He wants to redeem us. He wants to save us. It's his great joy. It makes him glad. And it is our great joy to be redeemed in Christ, isn't it? Is that your great joy? To be redeemed in Jesus Christ. And he brought them, it says, and he gave them the land he had promised them. That's what verse 44 reminds us of. That was their reward from God's gracious covenant with them. Now, we've talked a lot about Old Testament types here as we get this record and what they mean for us as a Christian now and how they were pointing to Christ and how they were pointing to new covenant realities. What is the promised land a type of for the Christian? What does it point to in the redemption that is yours and mine in Jesus Christ? What's our reward in God's covenant to us? Now, if we were to look in our hymnals, we'd probably say heaven and eternity with the Lord forever. There's a lot of songs in there about the promised land, and that's the picture. And that's not an incorrect answer. It's just incomplete. Um, that's definitely a reward of God's covenant with us through faith in Jesus. But when you think about the promised land, I want you to think about the Israelites going into the promised land. Did they have any responsibility? Yeah. They had to go in. They had to possess it. What did that mean? Was there anybody in there already? Yeah. And they had to kick them out. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of sin in there. That's why God told them to go in and kick them out. That don't sound a lot like heaven to me. You understand? Like I'm not saying the promised land is not a perfect metaphor in the Old Testament for heaven or type, but I, th I think a better one is the Christian life that we experience uh, and, and what God has for us. It's our reward from God. Yeah, God brought the Israelites to the promised land and God gave it to them, but they had a responsibility in enjoying that reward. 
They had to go in. They had to actually possess it. They had to fight for it. Enabled and empowered by God and promised by God that they would be victorious in possessing it. But that was required for them to enjoy what God gave them. And for that reason, I believe the promised land is a better type of of the Christian life for you and I right now. In salvation, God has brought us out of slavery, out of bondage to sin, just like he brought them out of Egypt. We no longer have to sin. We're no longer controlled by it like we were before we were saved. But if we're going to enjoy the reward of new life in Christ now, and not just sit here and pine away for eternity, that will be, if we're going to do that, we have a responsibility just like God's people did back then. We have to fight. Just like them, enabled and empowered by God, promised that we will be victorious if we fight. Um, There's things in our Christian life that need to be kicked out. Not to get new life in Christ, but to enjoy the reward that new life in Christ is. And kicking them out takes a fight. And with this responsibility, praise the Lord, we got a capability. We can actually do what he's asked us to do. We have a Holy Spirit-empowered capability to victoriously fight in our new life in Christ. I want you to look at the last verse here in this historic psalm about God's forever faithfulness to his people. It says, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Literally, that's what that means. You ever wonder why? Why Why did God make such a covenant with them and us? You ever wonder, like, why, why did God redeem us? Why, why did God save me? Why is God so good? Verse 45, that we might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. God's people couldn't do that in slavery. They couldn't worship him like God wanted in, in Egypt. Uh, they had to be called out. <laughs> They had to be recreated. We could not do that before we were saved. We couldn't do what verse 45 tells us to do before we were saved. But now, just like them, we have been brought to the promised land. And and we've been given a responsibility to go in and to possess what God has provided. And with that responsibility, we've been actually given the capability to observe his statutes and keep his laws. Again, not how you get saved, but what you're to do because you are saved. And David puts the same reward, this ability to enjoy what God has provided for us by walking in newness of life. David puts it this way in Psalm 130 verse 4. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That's why God is so good to us. That's why God saved us. That's why he's redeemed us. So that we might fear him, that we might worship him, that we might observe his statutes and keep his laws. That is a wonderful reward of God's covenant with us. Yeah, listen, I cannot wait for heaven <laughs> when there's no sin and where I don't got to fight anymore. Um, but you and I, as the redeemed in Christ, we have this reward right now. And it's an awesome one. We have the capability to worship God, to thank God, to praise God for our redemption by going in, fighting, and possessing what he bought for us with the blood of Jesus Christ. Tommy and the praise team come up to lead us in worship. Will you commit to do that with with a renewed and Holy Spirit-empowered effort tonight? Will you commit to to do that as worship for the wondrous works of our forever faithful God?